Amen, amen. You may be seated. It's good to see all of you this morning. Um, for any of those of you who may be new to Haynes Creek, welcome. Um, it's great to see your face. Great to have you here. Um, I encourage you at the end of the service, come find myself, find Travis, um, find Ken. We'd love to just say hello, meet you, and make sure you, make sure you feel welcome here. This morning, we're going, to, we're going to finish up our study of the spiritual disciplines or the habits of grace. Um, but before I do that, before we start that, I want to give you one disclaimer. Um, so we've had a, an incredibly busy last month. Uh, There's one stretch where I was on seven airplanes in six days. It, it's just been a crazy month for us. And, and anytime we see these months coming on the calendar, you're always thinking, okay, at some point somebody's going to get sick. It's, you, something's going to happen because you just can't run that hard without something going wrong. Um, so we, we made it through it until last night. So last night we're sitting there eating dinner with some friends and I have this pain in like my side and I'm like, what is that? Like that is very weird. Not in a very comforting location. Uh, we've pretty much deduced at this point that it's some sort of like rib strain or something along those sort of lines. So I tell you that if I take a deep breath and I grab my side, don't be alarmed. It's all fine. It's all normal. Nothing's happening. Um, but just wanted to give you that heads up this morning. If you want to be turning to Psalm chapter 22, that's where we're going to start in Scripture. Before we open that passage and before we open the Word of God, just a, a few introductory comments. Um, so we, we've spent all summer studying the spiritual disciplines, studying the habits of grace, uh, and we've covered a lot of different ground. Um, we've talked about prayer, we've talked about worship, we've talked about why we practice spiritual disciplines, we've talked about Sabbath and rest and giving and serving. We've talked about all of these disciplines that we're called to live out as believers. So the, the, the question before, before us and before the elders is, how do you wrap that up? Like, there's been a lot of talk over the, la or over the course of the summer about these very practical means and steps by which we practice the Christian faith. So what do we do with that? Um, so as, as we wrestled with that and, and kind of prayed through that, um, that there was this, this common theme that we kept coming back to, and that's the fact that this is the practice of the Christian faith. Um, Travis talked last week about how that affects us as individuals. Um, so he, he put before us a quote from Eugene Peterson, which I believe is absolutely helpful and, and truthful, that the Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. So Travis talked about how there's, there, there are these disciplines that we practice as individuals, that we practice as a church, and that is what it means to, to practice this, this belief set and this, this religion that we call Christianity. This week, we want to focus on what does that mean for us as a, as a corporate body. So last week was a lot of focus on what do we do, how do we practice as individuals. This week, we're going to talk about what does it mean for us as a, as a corporate body, as the church at Haynes Creek meeting in Oxford, Georgia in 2023, what does all of this mean for us as a body of believers together? Now, one caveat, you cannot separate these two things. Who we are as individuals and what we are as a corporate body are linked to one another in ways that you cannot separate. Um, if we are not having that life of long obedience in the same direction, 
we will, as individuals, we will not be the church that God wants us to be. So these are not two separate conversations. This, these are the same conversation. So all of the things that Travis talked about last week, you know, we continue to do these things even though it, it may not seem fun or easy or give us that high experience we're looking for. We continue to practice them in the same direction over a long period of time because that's ultimately what yields the spiritual fruit that we desire. So for today, <clears throat> I want to put one, one big idea in front of us as a congregation. So how do we take all of this conversation about the spiritual disciplines, translate into that into what we do as a church? So one big idea, and then we're going to look at the biblical, the biblical imperative for that idea. So we don't want to put anything before you and say, hey, this is important without giving you the biblical foundation for it. Um, and then we're going we're gonna to get very practical. We're going to take that one big idea, we're going to break it down into principles, into strategies, and into very practical things that we can do as individuals in, in the church to see this happen. So, <clears throat> here's the big idea. Of, of all the things that we can do as a corporate body, all the good ministries, all the good work, all the, the care for one another, the, the ultimate thing, the ultimate reason that a church exists is for the worship of God. And we're going to go from the Old Testament to the New Testament to the end in Revelation and see how this, this is the cord that ties all of biblical history in the past, in the future, and forevermore together. So that's the big idea, that, that worship is the reason that we exist. Individually, corporately, it's why we exist together. Travis gave you a, a great quote last week to hang your hat on, that long obedience in one direction. So I felt it was appropriate we gave you one for this week as well. Um, John Piper, who, not, who a lot of you know or have heard of, um, has, is wrapping up his ministry. He's been at a church in Minneapolis for four years. Um, but he, the, the, the corporate mantra that he put out in front of his people, and I think it's helpful and instructive for us, to give you a little more context, uh, his church is, is very active in their community, very active in global missions, but he says to his congregation over and over again that missions only exist because worship does not. So there's a lot of implications from that, but ultimately at the end of the day what he's saying is we're only doing all of this local ministry and all of this mission work to point to the worship of God. If the worship of God existed amongst all people, there would be no reason for mission, for ministry. All of those things are pointing to the worship of God. So, let's talk about the, the biblical imperative for this idea, for the idea that, that our end as a church is the worship of God. Our end as individuals is the worship of God. If you got your Bibles open to Psalm 22, this is a, a Davidic psalm, and the, it, it's, it's a psalm of agony in a lot of ways. Um, so, so David starts out in verse 1, uttering the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which, if you fast forward in biblical history, Christ is hanging on the cross and he utters those same words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the first 20 or so verses of this psalm is, is David wrestling with suffering and agony, and agony and pain and affliction 
And then we come to verse 22. And David says this, he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Okay, so what's going on in this passage? So David starts out beginning Psalm 22, recounting his agonies, crying out to the Lord in prayer, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm in this desolate place. I am oppressed, and I feel that you don't care. I've heard nothing from you. I've experienced no deliverance. And he works his way through that grief and that agony. And he comes to verse 23, and he says, you who fear the Lord, talking to his, to his fellow believers who believe in the future, future grace of God, praise him, and, you, and all you offspring of Jacob, glorify him, and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. He goes down to verse 26, and he says, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation, nation shall worship before you. So we see this pattern, David, agony, affliction, pain, wrestling with God, that turns into the praise of God, and then his personal praise turns into the corporate praise of the entire nation, and then the global praise of God amongst all families on the earth. From, from here, we're going to go to Romans, and then we're going to go to Revelation, but what I want you to see is two things. One is this, this pattern that David is following, because we see it all throughout Scripture. Pain, suffering, affliction leads to prayer, which leads to hope, which leads to the worship of God. But secondly, David says it, verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. So what David is saying is that where all of this is going, all of my personal pain, all of the struggle of the nation of Israel, all of redemptive history to come is pointing to all the families of the nations worshiping God is what it's pointing to. For us, the takeaway is this is not new. We, we think with, sometimes we think with the coming of Christ that the mission changed or the work of God changed. But what David's showing us here in Psalms is that it, it's always been the same. The, the arc of redemptive history, pre-Christ, post-Christ, post-resurrection, and forevermore is pointing to and for the worship of God. That remains unchanged. New covenant, old covenant, new kingdom, new heaven, new earth, the goal is the same. If you flip over to Romans 15, we're starting verse 8 there, Paul is Paul is discussing in Romans 15, um, at the beginning of the chapter, 
how the, the, the church should, should seek the good of others instead of the good of itself. And he wraps up that conversation and comes to verse 8. And he says this, he says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Verse 9, again, it says, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Paul's saying here, the explicit reason that Christ came, the, the explicit reason that there is a new covenant is that the Gentile may be able to worship God. Passage continues, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. He closes out the passage in verse 13 and says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So we see with David, Psalm 22, Old Covenant, all of human activity, all of redemptive history is pointing to the worship of God amongst all peoples. We come to Romans 15, what does Paul say? Paul says, Christ came in order that Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Old Covenant, pointing to the glory and the worship of God. New Covenant, pointing to the glory and the worship of God. Lastly, if you turn over to Revelation 4, we won't fully exposit this passage. Uh, Travis preached a a wonderful message on this very passage six, seven weeks ago when he was talking about corporate worship. So we we see the, the end of redemptive history. Old Covenant is the worship of God amongst all people. We see with Paul in Romans 15, the end of the new covenant is the worship of God amongst all people. We come to Revelation 4. This is in John's vision while he's in exile on the Isle of Patmos. And chapter 4 is, is the, the part of the vision in the great throne room. So at the end of days, prior to the coming of the new heaven and the new earth, this is what John sees. He says, After this I looked, and behold a door standing open in heaven, And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood open in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, With golden crowns on their heads, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and pearls of thunder, and before the throne were were burning seven torches of fire, which are like seven spirits of God. And before the throne there there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, and the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle 
in flight. So those first seven verses are all just context. John's painting the picture of what he sees in his vision. So he's in the throne room. He sees, he sees God on his throne surrounded by the 24 elders with these four creatures. Uh, it's a pretty wild <laughs> description, to put it mildly. Um, John did his, or maybe we'll say it the other way, Tolkien in Lord of the Rings did his best John impersonation, giving us all of this context. But then he gets to the point in verse 8. He says, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So here's John at the, the end of redemptive history as we know it. And what does he see? He sees worship. All, all of history is pointing to this moment. This is, this is the apex. And what is it pointing to? The worship of God. Well, what, what are these creatures doing? They're, they're incessantly worshiping God. What are the 24 elders doing? They are worshiping God corporately. So how do we tie all of these things together? If there's one thing that you walk away from today with, I want you to walk away with this. The, the, the worship of God has been the plan since God spoke us into existence at creation. That if, you, if it ever crosses your mind, well, why are we doing all of this? Why do, we, why do we align ourselves with this belief set? Why do we come on Sunday mornings? Why do we seek to live our lives in a certain way? It's, it's for this end. It is for the worship of God amongst all peoples. Old covenant, new covenant, end of redemptive history. It is all pointing to the worship of God. So with, with that kind of biblical foundation established, that we exist as individuals in a church for the express end of worshiping God, I want to dig a little bit further into what does that mean? What does it mean to worship God? What does that look like for us as individuals? What does that mean for us as a church? Let, let's start by, by digging into a little bit of what is worship. What, do, what does that word mean? We throw it out there a lot. We use it a lot. But I don't think we have a ton of common understanding about what we mean. Because, I mean, truly, worship at the end of the day, we use it for a lot of different things. We, we can use it to talk about the magnification of God in song. We can talk about it to explain the, the preaching of the word. We can use it to explain how we live our lives. So what are we saying when we say that we exist for the end of worshiping God? Two parts of it. The, the first, to worship, is to ultimately find our enjoyment and our satisfaction in God. Boil it all down whether we're singing praises to God, listening to the preaching of the word, having conversations with other people, working, talking to our neighbor, to worship 
is to find our satisfaction and enjoyment ultimately in God. Psalm 16, another Davidic psalm. David says, You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If we want to worship God, God must be our highest satisfaction. Now, (laughs) that's easy to say at a very high level. Once you start getting down into the details of that, it gets very complicated because human behavior is complicated. Why do we do the things that we do? It may look like we're doing good things, but we're doing them for bad reasons. You can unpack this forever, but it it gives us a common definition. When we say worship, we mean that we are finding our enjoyment and our satisfaction ultimately in God. Which then leads to a second question. How do we go about finding enjoyment in God? Because even that's a bit nebulous, right? It's like uh, we as human beings are not very good at understanding why we do things or how we arrive at certain conclusions. We tend to just do things and however it works out is how it works out. I think 2 Corinthians 3 is helpful for us. Paul, towards the end of that chapter, says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That that process that Paul talks about in verse 18, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So how do we tie those pieces together? So worship is, the, is finding our satisfaction in God. What does that have to do with this? Paul says that we are transformed and we find freedom in beholding the glory of the Lord. So if we want to enjoy God, if we want to find satisfaction in God and thereby worship God, it's incumbent upon us to find ways in which we can behold the glory of God. And then you ask the question, well, how do you do that? Great question. That's what we just spent all summer talking about. All of these disciplines, all of these habits of grace is for that express purpose. So that you, corporately, together with others, as individuals, in prayer, in study of the word, in service of others, in giving, can behold the glory of God. And in behold the glory of God, find your satisfaction in God. And in so doing, worship God. Now, if you want more on this second or third week of this series, I spent an entire sermon unpacking this very idea, so go see that. But I want us to remember, as we enter a conversation about how do we corporately take what we've learned about the spiritual disciplines and the habits of grace and translate that into what we do next, to remember that it's ultimately our end as individuals in a congregation to worship God, that we worship God by finding our satisfaction in Him, and that we find our satisfaction by beholding His glory, and that we behold his glory by practicing all of these disciplines that we've been discussing. All right, so put it all in summary. We exist, we being individuals, churches, historically, presently, and forevermore, exist for the worship of God. That's why we exist as human beings, that's why churches were, that's why churches were formed, that's what David was seeking in Psalm, that's what Abraham was seeking at the burning bush. That's what Noah was seeking on Mount Ararat. That's what Isaiah was seeking on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
It's what Christ brought to us, as Paul says, and it's what we see at the end of days, that we exist for the worship of God. So what does that mean for us as a corporate body? What does that mean for us specifically as the church at Haynes Creek? I'm going to talk about two different, kind of two different levels of, of thought and practice here. We're going to talk about strategically what does that mean. So what's the principle that kind of guides our actions? And then we'll go one step down to the more tactical level of, of what do we actually do day in and day out, week in and week out to see this happen. So strategically, we as a corporate body must make worship the core of our ministry. And this means that our corporate worship must be our primary ministry. Now, it begs the question, what am I saying there? What I'm saying is we can, we can do a lot of very good things. We can do a lot of means. We can have programs. We can have teachings. We can have ministries. We can do missions. But if we don't get the worship of God right, all of those means are good and are fine, but they're not accomplishing the end for which we exist as individuals and as a church. Now, I, personally, I will tell you, just my interaction with this idea over time, it's easy in larger church settings, for those of you who have been in larger churches, to put your attention on the means, the programs, the ministry, the means, the missions, it's easy to do it there because quite frankly, more than likely, there's a staff of pastors and elders who are paid to make sure the church is doing this worship thing well, the corporate worship well. And when you transition to a smaller church environment like we have here, it was easy for me to think, well, all of that just happens, right? Corporate worship just happens because every church I've ever been in, it did. And so your mind, my mindset's always been, well, let's think about the mission and let's think about the ministry and let's think about all the means largely to the deprivation of the end. Because at the end of the day, when we think about ourselves as a church, there are other organizations in our communities that can minister to those in need, that can help those who are in affliction, but there is only one entity called by God for the corporate worship of God, and that's the church. That's this local church. So strategically, it's imperative for us as a small church to make sure that our corporate worship is following that pattern I just outlined, that we are beholding the glory of God, and in beholding that glory, we find our satisfaction in God, and in finding that satisfaction, we worship God. Remember, remember John Piper saying, missions exist because worship does not. The, the, the challenge for us as a small church is that it's easy to get those backwards, that we focus on the mission, or the missions, or the ministry, or the programs, and forget the worship. Because there's no lack of tactical things to be done here. I mean, it's a small church. There's a need around every corner. 
And while those things are good and those things should be done, it is not the ultimate thing. So let's move one, one level further down and talk about tactically what does this mean? How, how do we start to head in this direction as a church and as individuals? What does that look like? First, let me give you this caveat. The, 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 and some of you will not care about this, but some of you I think it will be helpful. The, the history of this church has always been largely a focus on the ministry and the mission to the sacrifice of corporate worship. There's a million reasons for that. We can unpack those later. But what we are saying, what I'm saying to you today, what I believe Scripture is saying to us, what we as elders are saying to you, is we can no longer exist that way. We, we cannot take for granted what corporate worship is. It, it, it's important, it's imperative, it's what we're here for, and it's something that we have to focus on. That is not to the criticism or detriment of anyone in the past. It's just as we as elders have thought through and prayed through, where do we go from here? It has become incredibly clear that we have to get corporate worship right. Um, we, we have to put more time, more effort, more energy, more resources into making sure that our corporate worship of God is God-glorifying, uh, is done well, is done with excellence. And, and from that will come all the other things. Now, what we're not saying is, hey, we're going to focus on a worship service as a way to necessarily attract people. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is our corporate worship of God, which, remember, is fueled by our individual worship of God, is the fuel by which all the other things happen. If we had a church that, that was great at missions, it was great at ministry, but we were really bad at worship, we need to tear it all down and start over again because we missed the point. The point for us as individuals and as a church from the beginning of redemptive history until the end is the worship of God. And there's nobody else in this community that's going to fill that void. We can listen to podcasts. We can listen to sermons. We can do all of those things. But that is not, that is not what God's calling us to. God, we're, our, our task as a church is to take the vision in Revelation 4 and pull it back to reality as closely as we possibly can. That's our goal. That's what we're here for. So tactical practices. Um, so o over the next few months, uh, we want to take a look at everything. How are we spending our money? How are we spending our time? How are we doing things on Sunday morning? We want to look at all of it. And there, there are no, outside of the biblical teaching of the Word of God, um, and I will talk some more about guidelines here in a second, there are, no, there are no sacred cows. Tear it down, look at it, make sure we're doing it the right way. Um, it, we're, tactically, be, be looking for us to pour a lot of our resources into what happens on Sunday mornings and the support of Sunday mornings. So what, what it takes to pull off a great Sunday morning, a great corporate worship together, we're really going to be leaning into pouring our time, our talent, our resources, our money into those things. Let me give us some, some basic guidelines for how we start to think about that. Um, first and foremost is biblical fidelity. So as we think about our Sunday morning experiences, 
and how we worship together corporately, biblical fidelity is number one. If it's not, if it's not in Scripture, if there's not a mandate for it in Scripture, if it's not biblically supported, we're not going to do it. Um, so, you know, you're probably not going to show up next week and have Hillsong 2.0. That's not what we're talking about here. You're, you're, we're, not, we're not talking about trying to attract people for the sake of a production. We're talking about attracting people for the sake of the glory of God. So that's one, biblical fidelity. Second guideline is, is being all in on corporate worship. Um, we'll talk a little bit here in a second about some practical means by which we can make that happen, but this means doing things with excellence. That means doing things well. That means we're going to have to spend some money. All of those types of things. We want to be all in on corporate worship because we believe that that's the end for which we exist. Third uh, is always beholding the word, uh, the, the word of God and the glory of God. So we see in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul kind of outlines that that walking of how do we enjoy God, how do we find satisfaction in God, it's by beholding the glory of God. And that's what corporate worship will be about. It's an opportunity to behold the glory of God. In song, in the preaching of the word, in giving, in seeing one another, and loving one another, that will be the goal. It will be an opportunity for us to behold the glory of God. All right, so personally, let's take it all the way down to what does this mean for us day in and day out? A couple of things. One is, is to, to find ways in our, in our daily lives to behold that glory of God. That could look a, a lot of different ways. That could be the singing of songs. That could be family worship. That could be podcasts, sermons, reading the Bible. All of these practices we've talked about, do them. We want to have that long obedience in the same direction because what that does is that allows us as individuals to behold the glory of God and then when we come here collectively and corporately to worship God, there's a richness that that creates that there is no, that there is no production on earth can, can touch. The, I, I think often of the, the individuals that I have had the opportunity to visit overseas in hard places and there may be only seven eight nine ten of them gathered but the the richness of their corporate worship is unspeakable and the reason is that individually apart from that group they live in a context where they're forced to behold the glory of God every day there's no option they have to and man when they come together corporately doesn't make a difference so that's, that's kind of a first tactical, practical thing that you can do is exactly what Travis said last week. Long obedience in the same direction. We want to behold the glory of God so that we can enjoy God, so that we can worship God. And the means by which we do that is the practice of the spiritual disciplines. Second, pray and pray often. Um, I, I can tell you <laughs> that I was not in a place personally to have preached this sermon two years ago, three years ago. But by prayer and, and the work of the Holy Spirit and the searching of Scripture and talking with fellow believers, God changes things. I don't know any other way to put it to you. What, what you think is so clear and so crystal, 
as you pray and as you, you ask God, he may change your heart. He may not, but he may. So, so pray that, as Travis preached last week, pray that our hearts would be fertile soil, that we would be fertile soil to experience the glory of God and be transformed by it. Pray for, for those of us that are up here week in and week out. It, it, it is a great temptation to, to think what we do up here is about us, and it's not about ultimately the worship and the glory of God. And you can, you can make a list, as long as this pipe and drape, of all of the pastors and music ministers that have fallen victim to that mindset. Third, pray, pray for wisdom for yourself and for us as a congregation on how do we invest in this going forward? What does that look like? Uh, you know, it, it could look like a million different things, education, training, atmosphere, I mean, you name it. It could look like a lot of different things, but we, we're going to need wisdom from the Lord on how to invest what he's entrusted us with to fulfill the ultimate end that he's asked us to, to fulfill. And lastly, be prepared to be involved. Um, I, I know for some of you, you, you hear the words that I'm telling you right now, and it's like, well, no, duh. Like, that makes total sense. Some of you, it's going to be a little more of, of a struggle to, to get there. And, and that's where I, I would encourage you to go back to prayer, go back to beholding the glory of God, and, and see what change he brings about in your life. But regardless of where you're at, be prepared to jump in. Like, I can't stand right here right now today and tell you, Here's the 16 things we need to, to start to walk this out. And quite frankly, it's going to be some trial and error. We're going to try some things that are going to work and try some things that don't work. That's fine. But what, what we as elders need from you is, is be prepared to, to serve in this, to give to this, to, to give your, your time, your talent, and your resources to, to make this happen. Um, and, and this is not just so anybody, this is not like a backhanded way to say, hey, we need some people to help set up on Sunday mornings. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying pray, be intentional, because what, where we believe the Lord is leading us is way more than, hey, we just need some help setting up on Sunday morning. Um, so, as you walk away from today, hang, hang your hat on this fact that everything we've talked about this summer the practice of the spiritual disciplines, how we do them, why we do them, the, that, that long obedience in a single direction that Travis talked about, all of that is worth it at the end of the day. Now, it doesn't necessarily feel like it day in and day out. I'll admit to you, there, there are days where the study of the Word just feels dry and you kind of feel what David is saying in, in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm doing these things, and it feels like nothing's happening. But God calls us to that long obedience in a single direction. And the uncomfortable fact for us is that a lot of times those dry days and those difficult days and the days where we ask, why do we keep doing this, are preparing us for something that's coming, and I'll tell you, a lot of times that something that's coming is not good. It is hard. It's challenging. It, it, it puts us right where David's at in Psalm 22, in affliction and pain and suffering and trial. But man, those habits that we've built, those disciplines that we've built, 
they carry us through those moments. And then we get to the end of Psalm 22, and we're able to exclaim with David and say, hey, God is good. God is great. I will praise the Lord. This nation will praise the Lord. And ultimately, one day, all peoples will praise the Lord. As we close, we'll close with communion as we always do. Um, for those of you who, who are new here, the elements are on each side. We encourage those of, those of you who have um, surrendered to a relationship with Jesus Christ and have put your trust and your, your future hope in him um, to come and partake in those elements. But before we do that, I, I want to close with, with a hymn that has been um, very helpful to me. Um, the, the hymn is Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. The, the hymn was written sometime around 1920 by Helen Limmel. Um, and she was actually writing it about the life and legacy of a lady named Lilas Trotter. Um, Trotter, she was a Brit. Uh, she was growing up in London, a very accomplished artist. She felt the call of calling the Lord of her life to, to go to Algeria, northern Africa, uh, and she did. She laid aside her art career, picked up, went to Algeria, <laughs> and nothing happened. She was there for 40 years, and not one single shred of what we would think as progress could be seen. Towards the end of her ministry, she ended up dying in Algeria at about 45, sorry, about 65 years old. She wrote, she wrote this booklet called Focused, with two S's, because, you know, Brits like to spell things differently, um, a story and a song. It, I would encourage you to go look it up. Um, but towards the end of that booklet, she had these two paragraphs, and she says, she's talking about this idea of focusing on the work of the Lord, to focusing on the things that God has called her to. And she says this, she says, Will it not make life narrow, this focusing? In a sense it will, just as the mountain path grows narrower, for it matters more and more, the higher we go, where we set our feet, but there is always, as it narrows, a wider and wider outlook and purer and clearer air. Narrow as Christ's life was narrow, this is our aim, Narrow as regards self-seeking, broad as the love of God to all around, is there anything to fear in that? In the narrowing and the focusing, the channel will be prepared for God's power, like the stream hemmed between the rock beds that wells up in a spring, like the burning glass that gathers the rays into an intensity that will kindle fire. It is worthwhile to let God see what he can do with these lives of ours, when to live is Christ. So Helen Limmel, having read Trotter's booklet, then penned the, the, the hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. She says, O soul, are you weary and troubled? Think David's utterings in Psalm 22. No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. So turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Through death into life everlasting, he passed and we follow him there. 
or, or as sin has dominion no more, for more than conquerors we are. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will, go, will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Join me in prayer. Father, we, we, we acknowledge humbly the truth that we were made for worship. That we as individuals, we as churches, were made for the worship of you. Father, we, we confess that we all too often are not fertile soil, that we all too often are soil where the cares of this world and the busyness of our schedules and our self-deception of our own importance choke out the, the priority of beholding you, finding our satisfaction in you, and worshiping you. Father, we, we humbly ask as individuals that you give us the strength and the grace to practice these things that we've spent all summer talking about. That when they feel dry and they feel pointless and they, they, they feel useless, that you remind us of why we were created. That you remind us that we were made for worship. And that we worship by practicing these disciplines beholding your glory, finding our satisfaction in you. Father, we, we pray that as we come now for, for a, a very physical expression of worship and communion, that we would not do this just as another road activity that we do every Sunday, but that we would both remember the sacrifice of Christ on the cross but also look forward and hope for the future that's coming. That we look forward to the new heaven and the new earth and the throne room of Christ where the, the worship amongst all peoples is fulfilled. And that we as the created fulfill the reason that we were made. Father, we close with this. We, 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 we humbly ask you that as we, as we embark on this journey as a congregation to, to explore how to corporately worship you well to the best of our abilities, that all along that we would keep our attention on you and that in so doing that the things of this earth would grow strangely dim and that we would find our happiness and joy and satisfaction in the light of your glory and grace. In your precious holy name we pray, amen.